Hello, welcome to a new episode of A Grand Reflection. Here we are on an Easter Sunday, so happy Easter and um, happy spring equinox, uh, which was not that long ago. And also uh, happy Trans Awareness Day, which was in between the two, which is kind of wild. Um, what else? Uh, happy late Good Friday. Um... Originally, I was going to record this during that day, but uh, I figured we'd had enough death, so let's just skip to the resurrection. <laughs> um, this one, though, is still going to kind of deal with death in a lot of ways. We are in a new season, and I'm excited for this new season, but there is a bit of a transition going on from the death and acceptance to sort of a spring forward into new life kind of thing um and i'll get to that later but as we're doing this exact episode i do want to sort of give a disclaimer that um i'm probably going to put forth some ideas that are a little difficult to grapple with and that could be coming from either direction so uh, i just want to say that straightforward i wish it wasn't that way i wish it was a direct message an easy message something that uh we can all easily agree on um and i think it is that in the end uh for sure by the time we get through the whole thing i think there's going to be a lot of uh freedom there but it's going to be a rough path path to get there and uh you know uh resurrection starts with the cross and uh, or if I want to put it from a different direction, uh, gender euphoria starts with a painful and messy transition. And even as I use those two metaphors, I know that um, people are going to be frustrated with putting those two things together as if they're similar things. Um, on either side of that issue, right? Like um, if you're coming from the LGBTQ community, I'm sure there's going to be a degree of like, how dare you... Uh, get god in the mix of that um don't do that and then if you're in the christian community i'm sure you're going to be like how dare you get trans in the mix of talking about resurrection in jesus that's uh messed up and yet it kind of seems like those things are very much in opposition right now i know that um at least where the discussion is going there is sort of this battlefield being waged of who's right and um who is on the wrong side of history here and uh, I have some ideas about that. But in order to get to those ideas, I think we've got to go through this whole messy, long thing. And um, it's going to be a fun ride. So I guess all that to say is just withhold judgment and just hear me through. And you don't have to agree with me, but uh, I would love it if you have the energy to listen through what I'm saying, as crazy as some of it sounds. And... Um, yeah, as always, if you have any questions by the end of it, feel free to send me a message and we can talk about it. We can uh, figure out not necessarily a consensus, but a way to live with each other. And uh, I would love that. I would love those conversations and, and that sort of messiness and in between this. So uh, without further ado, I am going to sort of give as way of an introduction, a couple different lenses, uh, a few different lenses, three of them to be exact. And that'll sort of kickstart the whole thing. So here we go. Okay, mom, dad, um, 
thanks for meeting with me and uh, please just please sit down for a minute i i just want to uh, get yourself comfortable i just want to talk about uh something that i've been experiencing and i want to share it with you guys i uh whew, where do i start i have been um understanding some things about myself and i want to share it with you guys because you guys raised me and i want you guys to hopefully um see the joy and, and 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 feel the joy that i'm feeling um but before i tell you about it i i just want to say like uh if you don't agree with it i i hear that um i know that it's not how you raised me i know that uh that it's not your idea of um something that's healthy or or good necessarily um, but I hope I can change your mind on that by, by you guys seeing how it plays out in my life and seeing the, the beauty and the freedom that I find in it and, and trusting um, my judgment on the matter. But uh, I guess <clears throat> I've got to tell you about um, some things unfolding in me that I didn't expect. It's, I, I didn't plan on this in one sense, but um, as this relationship is unfolding that I've uh, been encountering, I have been seeing parts of myself open up and, and things that I didn't know were there that were always there. Um, this certain beauty that is happening. And so I guess I'm just, I'm just going to go out and say, it. I, I think, I think we should just get the cards on the table. And, um, I, I admit I'm a little scared of how, what you guys will think, but, uh, honestly, it's, uh, it's something that's happening either way. I'm finding uh, a new level of acceptance and, uh, love, and I can't let go of that. So I need you guys to know, mom, dad, I'm a Christian. Are you tired of the ways of the world and the ways that the powers that be seem bent on destruction of your very being? Do you feel like there's something more that we're missing? Something bigger and deeper, a more expansive love that says that you are enough, that you are accepted into the fold and community is waiting? Then come, join us for this year's Pride Festival. Um, yeah, Palm Sunday. And Jesus arrives into town, uh, transported on a donkey. And everyone is saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, which translates to save us, save us. And the reason they're saying this is because they're hoping for a transfer of power that will um, transition them away from the oppression that the Roman Empire is enacting upon them. And so the donkey is sort of a non sequitur because they're like, well, why, why don't you have like this armored horse or something? Like, why aren't you like charging into battle a donkey, really? But um, the next day, there is another event that seems to kind of bring them back into this conquering mentality, uh, which is that Jesus goes to the temple and what he does in the temple is he kicks out these money changers because their uh, transactions were a transgression. They, this is a holy place, and these people are trying to make money. And now we'll transport ourselves to a few days later at the Passover feast. And there are these rituals and um, 
they're very familiar to the Jewish people. It's one of the most uh, celebrated holidays because it is a remembrance of the way that God delivered people out of the hands of Egypt. And especially in the context of the Romans, there's this tremendous hope um, that there will be um, a new deliverance. And so Jesus takes these metaphors and he transforms them into something more. He says, not only do all these mean that, the blood represents the lamb that was slain and the blood that was put on the, the doorstep, the wine represents that blood, and the bread is the unleavened bread that um, was made in haste so that we could leave. But also, uh, this bread, this is my body, and this wine, this is my blood that will be poured out for you. Um, so in transforming this, he creates uh, what is later called by the Catholic Church the uh, doctrine of transubstantiation, which means the uh, transforming of this food into the body of Christ. And uh, so if we transport ourselves forward again in time, we get to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's during the transition into night and the disciples are falling asleep and Jesus is trying to pray and he knows his time is coming and he knows they're coming for him. And uh, his disciples can't even stay awake. But what happens is uh, Judas uh, betrays him with the transfer of a kiss that enacts a transfer of custody to the Roman centurions. And one of the disciples says, uh, hell no, uh, time for revolution, and cuts off a, uh, the ear with the sword of one of the centurions. And what happens next is everybody is sort of transfixed by this action that Jesus does uh, by transferring the ear back to this person and healing it. But they transport him anyway. And uh, meanwhile, behind the scenes, Judas's transaction is complete, uh, the transaction that betrayed Jesus. And uh, he throws the money back because he sort of recognizes his guilt. There's sort of other things going on there too, but um, it doesn't transcend his actions. He's still uh, stuck with the guilt. And meanwhile, uh, Jesus has been transferred to Pilate and Pilate can't figure out what Jesus's transgression is. There's nothing that he's done that's illegal. But the crowd is transmitting the message crucify. And so Pilate makes a deal and he says, well, I have this other person and I have Jesus, you guys choose. And so they transpose Jesus with the criminal who gets set free. And then they transport him to the cross. And as he's transfixed into place, they transcribe a message in mockery that says, uh, hail Jesus, King of the Jews. That's what it translates to. And Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in the Aramaic, it sounds kind of like he's crying to Elijah and they misunderstand what he's saying. Something gets lost in translation. And um, he is utterly alone there, except he's not totally alone because um, his mom's there and his friend is there. And during that moment, he transfers the care of his mother to his friend. Um, 
as one of his last acts, making sure his people are taken care of. And so after that, he just dies. <laughs> and this transcendent divine conquering nature that everybody was expecting uh, turned out to only be a transitory affair. And then he transitions into death and he's transferred into the tomb and the tomb is sealed. But on the third day, he transitions back into life and transcends death itself. And so I guess as I'm looking at all of this, I hear trans, 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 and I can't help but wonder, is Jesus trans? Is this whole narrative a trans narrative? So I would just want to take a second with all three of those lenses and say, um, I recognize that each of them has an ending that's unexpected. And so, uh, if you want to take a second, listen to them, I kind of urge you to go do that, um, and view them in light of the end. I think that this is a good practice, um, again, on both sides. So for one, uh, Jesus's parables, uh, kind of have this habit of going this way. Um, the resurrection is that way too. Like, uh, as you're reading the story of the cross, like it's this brutal death and you're like, why what this is supposed to be like the king, the kingdom come, this doesn't even make sense. Like the leader is dying. But if you know that that's what's happening, uh, then uh, it changes the whole story. And the same sort of way with um, messy transitions uh, with gender affirming care and uh, people being in the in-between, sometimes it sort of evolves a death, uh, a death of some relationships, a death of... Um, personal identity, the, the ways that somebody has moved in the world is dying. You know, you start using different pronouns, you start going by different names, and there's this, um, this sort of process that doesn't, that feels disjointed, and um, you don't know where it's going. But as that transition continues, it becomes more clear, and you can kind of see um, the signs retrospectively. Uh, I think a lot of times people will go like, well, there was, you know, I always just knew you as who you were. Like, why are you changing these things? I, I thought you were fine. And, um, it's because you can't know until the end. You can't know, uh, what's going on under the surface, uh, to sort of use those death metaphors and bring those back in. You can't know what's going to come up in the spring by analyzing the soil in the fall. Um, at least not without doing a lot of uh, damage to the soil itself. You kind of just have to trust that whatever was planted is hopefully going to come up later. And um, there are the seeds. And, and seeds are a metaphor that's used a lot for Jesus's ministry. But um, there, there's seeds that are planted in our lives that come up later and it does kind of take a uh you don't see the full picture until those um those things blossom forth so of course by highlighting this i'm also giving a little foreshadowing in hopes that um there would be some certain signs of where we're going with this thing even the, even if we can't quite tell we're getting a little bit of uh prophecy involved a little bit of um a uh, little bit of 
circling around without saying exactly what we're coming to and a little bit of an inkling that something is uh, going on here that's going to have a payoff in the end if we can trust and get to the end. So as we're doing that, the question that arises is why try to unify these things? Because um, they're not easily unified and it seems like a really difficult thing to do. Like why... Why go through all this trouble just to bring these two things together? And I think there's two reasons for that. One is, um, as I have come to learn the damage of binaries as a general thing, I have been very interested in unifying seeming opposites. So just on a bigger collective level, this is something that very much seems in opposition. Um, the, uh, rise of uh, trans awareness and that the topic of being trans and um, even just the rise of trans people in the world as opposed to uh, the Christian narrative and the way that God created you and the way that God created the world and the order to it that you are messing with if you uh, sort of disregard the truth of things to um, further your own personal narrative. And obviously there's a lot more on both sides of those. I've stereotyped each by saying this, but um, I think you guys get the point that, and, and we see it, that, this, that these things are um, kind of pitted as diametrically opposed to each other. So I, whenever I see something that's so very diametrically opposed to, to opposing viewpoints, um, I instinctively want to find what's in the middle of it because often, more often than not, by unifying those opposites, something new comes forth that's really interesting and fun. Um, so just on a conceptual level, I'm interested in this. But on a personal level, even more so, uh, coming through the end of last season, I shared with you guys about my internal identity and these complex nuances that have arisen by me letting go of some of these binaries. And the realization that there's an internal self that has always been there um, who calls herself Mira, um, who I have been more and more recognizing just myself as Mira and, and not as this sort of separate entity within me, but just as me, because it is my deeper self, uh, the part of me who uh, feels the most at home in the world, um, feels most uh, comfortable uh, in being in this world. Uh, the part, parts of me who I like the most. And with that, recognizing that, well, holy crap, like, I don't know why I didn't label it this way, but that's trans. Like, my internal identity doesn't match my external um, physicality. That, <laughs> there, there's no other piece to that. That's just what it is. And I think it took me a while to realize this because I had some stereotypes in my head about what it means to be trans. The immediate, the immediate imagery that I got that was handed to me was um, like a wanton sexuality, um, a demand to be seen, a sort of uh, self-righteous egoic existence with overly gaudy makeup and slutty clothes and um, being very promiscuous towards men, but in a uh, sort of... Uh, deceptive way. There's a lot of these narratives about transness of like being tricked 
Um, which in itself is problematic. Like it's that's implying that that these are really men that are pretending to be women. Um, but all that kind of stuff. Uh, in the mix too with uh, honestly, I grew up with a lot of car culture, and uh, there's a interesting through line here, which is the word tranny. Uh, it's a derogatory term for a, a trans person, but um, it's also a term for the undercarriage of a car. And I think that there's a certain subconscious intentionality there to devalue. You don't think about a transmission of a car unless there is a problem that needs to be fixed that calls a mechanic to come in. So like uh, when you say I'm having tranny problems, what you mean is the long shaft underneath the car needs to be worked on. Um, and so an implication by calling somebody else a tranny, you're, you're using the same logic of this is purely a mechanical issue. You have a thing in the undercarriage that needs attending to. Um, and it draws attention to the maleness of the body rather than the feminine internal nature of this person in front of you. It's um, compressing it down into the purely mechanical and physical and saying that that's all that there is of a person. But as I think about these things, especially um, thinking about binaries, uh, to turn something down into the mechanical like that is to turn somebody into a robot. And that's what we do when we create binaries. That's how robots work. They work on binary code. They are um, either or operations. It's um, a, 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 a way of operating that says there's a right answer and a wrong answer and that's it. And so it... it when I think about these things, what that's doing is it's diminishing a humanness. And, and the, the way that we treat trans people is sort of a microcosm of that. We, we narrow it down into this pure physicality, this mechanical existence that says that there's either or. And um, when we do that, it's really easy to say, well, there's either a person or a not person. And anybody that doesn't fit the categories that we've decided mean person, like for instance, male and female, um, are either need to be forced into one of those categories because there's only the two options, or they are um, put into a new category of exclusion and inclusion. It's these hard boundaries. And this doesn't stop, unfortunately, like this goes both directions. When somebody is operating in these systems, they also do it to themselves. So implicitly by saying uh, like that a trans woman isn't a woman, you're also saying that my contingency on being a man, if, if you're a man saying it, is uh, that there is these, this category that I have to stay in. Um, and I'm not allowed to get outside of that. And I already talked about a lot of that in the death and acceptance episode, the toxic masculinity and the norms that hit there and, and how it creates binaries. Um, the same sort of attitude that says that trans uh, people are not women is the attitude that says if somebody enters into my home, I have a right to kill them, that there's just good people and bad people. Um, but again, that turns you into robots and none of us are robots, but we do have a tendency to start to play at being robots to start to play at being less than human, less than real. Um, so that's probably something I'll return to in a little bit. Um, this idea of a true humanness and a fullness of our being. But for now, I want to get to the second part of, of why I'm going through this whole thing, which is 
as I was talking about all this stuff last season and really taking a hard critical look at Christianity and um, this religiosity that has to do with sort of the Protestant revolution and the uh, capitalism in the mix and um, these binaries of good and evil and, and, and all these intersections, uh, I definitely put it up as a, a new binary in a way, like Christianity bad and all this other stuff good. And obviously that's not the case. I don't know that there's any true binaries. And even if there are, to submit to them, like I said, is less than human. And more so than that, though, uh, as I've been sitting with this over the winter time, I have really, really come back into my own Christianity. There's some things in there that um, I can't help but um, still love and still appreciate. And so this is sort of a pendulum swing back in the other direction. Easter is such a good time to talk about this and really start to try to untangle some of these things or retangle some of these things, <laughs> maybe is more accurate. But speaking of binaries with this, there's sort of a meta level here where I have this um, newfound trans identity and this newly rediscovered Christian identity. And it gets even deeper than that because the part of me that most believes the Christianity seems to be the part of me that is most Mira as well. So I'm in this interesting place where I am unable to submit to these binaries that were handed to us because if I am to um, deny my transness, that part of me also believes in Christianity. <laughs> and if I'm to deny my Christianity, then that part of me is also the part that is most trans. And so by denying either, I become a sort of a less than version of whichever one I choose. I, I cannot untangle them. They, they are one and the same. Th this identity in Christ and this identity as Mira um, are not separate. So that is my own personal experience. And that is experiential. But also there's some truths that are much more universal that I think I can bring into that, um, that we can work from this level of paradox that I'm finding within myself. And we can sort of resolve the paradox, not fully. It's always going to be a bit of a paradox for sure. And I think that that's uh, fantastic. Um, there's a mystery there. I love mystery. I love when um, it's clear that there's more to explore and we don't have it all figured out. But that being said, um, I'm in a unique spot to sort of wrestle with these things together rather than separate and really try to find the common ground between them and, and then have something new emerge. So that's where we're going today. That's the game plan. And uh, we'll see what we get into. One of the books that I read during the offseason here was a book called Emergent Strategy. An Emergent Strategy is a book about the idea of doing social and collective change from a different perspective rather than directly tackling um, and opposing these giant forces uh, that kind of control our lives in various ways and cause um, inequality and um, pain and suffering for people is to uh, start from the bottom up and take things that we know to be true, um, that we know are good, and just sort of live them out and trust that um, 
as we find the good, other people will find the good. And those things will sort of, because there'll be different facets of like the overall good, will sort of mix together in an unexpected way. And emerging out of this will be these complex systems that uh, have a real lasting power for change. But for a while, as those things are ruminating and processing, they aren't going to seem like they really do a lot. They're going to seem like um, things that are very ineffective, inefficient, um, and uh, they will almost seem more like ignoring the issues rather than um, confronting them. And it's a fantastic book. Uh, I highly recommend that you read it a lot of really good insights and a lot of really freeing insights of this idea that we don't have to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of the greater good. Um, there's something profound there. And she's bringing a lot of um, really cool ideas that come from a fiction author, Octavia Butler, especially a book called The Parable of the Sower um, and its sequel, The Parable of the Talents. I guess there was a third one that Octavia Butler was in the process of writing, but um, she went through like hundreds of iterations and just couldn't nail it down and um, passed away before she could finish it. Um, there's something about that too, the unfinished, the, the, the already and the not yet that I see a parallel with the Christian narrative as well. Um, I'll probably get, get, get back to that already and not yet, but for now, um, this idea that emerges from her, uh, her fiction is that God is change. And at first that seems really blasphemous because the stuff that we've been taught within Christianity is that, um, you, uh, you can't think of God as something that changes because then the, there's not an assurance anymore. If we can't rely on God to be consistent, um, if God is not immutable, then, um, like hope is lost, but that's not exactly what the notion is getting to. The notion is more getting to, uh, this idea of an unfolding, um, a revelation that continues to, um, be made more and more clear. Um, like a flower blooming, you wouldn't say that like a rose bud is no less, a, or is like less of a rose plant. You would say like, it hasn't bloomed yet, but it, it, the, the stuff is already there. It, it will bloom um, and pass away, which is a whole other thing that I don't know if I'm ready to handle yet. But the idea is of this unfolding, this coming into fruition. And Jesus uses a lot of these metaphors too, right? Like um, the fig tree and the fruits bearing fruits, uh, fruits of the spirit. Um, I'm the vine, you are the branches. There's, there's all these sort of ideas of growth and unfolding. And it does kind of show up that way through the narrative. If you look at the Old Testament, it's this, this idea of um, God coming further and further and further into creation and uh, getting closer and closer and closer to the people that... Um, and I'm going to start using they for God, so don't let that throw you off too much, but I think there's a lot more evidence for they as God when you look back to the original Hebrew rather than he. Um, you know, it's more accurate to say they were hovering over the, the waters. Uh, and it's a plural they, which is so wonderfully mind-blowing. But anyway, uh, this this idea of um, revealing 
Uh, we talked about this a little bit in terms of apocalypse. A lot of times a revealing can look like a world ending or a death. And I think that there's a really cool intersection of the cross there, sort of a culmination of this idea of um, sort of a cycle, a spiraling upward. Uh, spiral dynamics mentioned in the mind episode probably gets there too, where you start, start circling around, um, slowly getting into a, a higher consciousness, uh, more understanding, more presence in the world. Um, so there's that. And then there's also this other notion too. We tend to, um, from the, the trans perspective, we tend to uh, overemphasize in some ways this idea of like born this way and underemphasize this idea of becoming, which is totally understandable because again, it, it sort of on the surface seems to delegitimize the whole thing. If you say um, I am becoming trans or I am becoming something other than what I was originally, then it gives the illusion that you're, uh, that you're just doing this because you feel like it, um, that it's not really your true nature. It's just, um, something that you're choosing into. Um, it's almost more looked at as like how you choose into, um, choose into faith. It, when, when you say that it's your choice, it's almost like you're saying I had a, um, a moment where I decided to accept the LGBTQ agenda into my life it is kind of like maybe how the right would frame it. Um, but uh, there is another aspect there. There's this idea like this immutable self, but there's also a tremendous choice involved in who you become in the world. And um, I've mentioned before the difference between soul and spirit, like like who you are at your core compared to like what you do in the world. The spirit is, um, back when I was talking about ghosts, spirit is this idea of um, your action in the world as a being. So like the spirit of uh, America would be like, you know, are we acting in the spirit of America? Whatever that means to anybody would be like, like, this is what we're doing. But if you say like um, the soul of America, it sounds a lot more dire, right? It's not like what we're doing. It's like who we are. And um, that's a lot harder to define. So maybe, uh, maybe that's like a good framework to kind of look at all this change with is like, when I'm talking about change, I'm talking about spirit change. I'm not talking about soul change. Um, I think that there's uh, something innately divine, beautiful, wonderful about um, every human being on this earth that is um, innate, that can't really be lost or um, it can be hidden, I think, for sure. And that's, that's where the spirit gets involved. Um, I'm looking at these metaphors of like uh, uh, hiding under a bushel or versus shining your light um, before everyone. Uh, there, there's a lot of Christian metaphors in there about um, hiding versus showing. And when we look at it that way, there's this um, this aspect to transness uh, that has to do with self-expression that is a showing it's it's saying hey look i was born this way and what i mean is my soul has always been this way but i am choosing to live that out as i go through the world i'm choosing to um be in the world this way interact with others interact with creation um in a way that is uh true to my internal identity 
I'm choosing not to put a mask on is kind of the idea. And so in that sense, when we're talking about emergence, obviously there's a very clear line here uh, with like coming out. We talk about people coming out, like coming out of the closet, right? The, which closet is such a weird metaphor for that. But I really like this idea of coming out that is related to emergence. It's saying, hey, I'm no longer going to hide my soul. Um, I'm no longer going to stifle my spirit. Um, but I am going to uh, choose to move through the world uh, in a better way. I am coming out. I am revealing. Uh, it's a revelation. I am, uh, just as God continues to reveal themselves uh, through the scriptures, I am going to continue to reveal myself to the world more and more. I'm choosing to enact this process of um, becoming known in a more intimate way, in a way that looks more relational, that looks closer, um, more vulnerable for sure, um, but more authentic as well. And in a lot of ways, this process looks like having a bunch of little deaths. They're not really true deaths. They don't stick because they, they were never a part of the actual thing to begin with. Um, much like Jesus on the cross, uh, being a little death that is um, killing the idea of him as this conquering leader who is going to usher in a new kingdom through uh, power plays and violence, um, the, the cross is ultimately killing that idea for um, how anybody perceives him. But it's not a true death. I, I mean, in his case it is, but it's not a death that sticks, right? Like he, he transfers himself into death and then transfers back out. Um, it can seem like a death, but it's not really. Um, and, and I see a lot of uh, similarities here between when somebody uh, transitions into a new gender and they tell their family, hey, I no longer want to be known by this name. I'm, I'm going to be known as this. Uh, so they'll say, like, this is my dead name. This is my old name. Please don't call me that. And more often than not, the family does kind of go through a grieving process. They go through, like, the the um the process of losing this person like if somebody is um was born a male and they say hey i'm i'm actually female or, well not female because that would be just anatomy but i'm i'm feminine uh i am a woman then the uh the family will sort of like mourn the the death of their son in a way and in a lot of ways it's unwarranted right because it's not like the person died it's it's not even like there's somebody new here, somebody alien. It's the person they've always known. It's just a new way of being in the world that matches up with that. Um, and it's if anything, it's more about um, getting rid of the ideas that were false about the person than it is about the person really changing. Um, there are changes that are involved, too. Uh, just like with Jesus rising from the grave, his body goes through a transformation, but it's still like the same self. It's still Jesus. People recognize him as Jesus. They know his voice. Um, they're having trouble believing it, and he has to kind of show them, hey, look, here's the here's the scars from the, the crucifixion. It's me. Uh, so there is a certain bit of like not recognition because he has been transformed, but there's also uh, more than that. It's 
uh, people are having trouble believing because of their expectations of his character. And uh, this emergence from the tomb, uh, this coming out, is a process of telling them and letting them know uh, this is actually what I'm about and what I've always been about. And just some notes on that. It's not just Jesus himself that does this, right? Uh, there are countless, I, I don't even know if I could list them all, uh, times when uh, people have been uh, either give themselves a new name or have been given a new name by the divine. And these names, uh, so in a lot of ways, like uh, Saul is a dead name. Simon is a dead name. Uh, Abram is a dead name. All these uh, people have been given um, new identities based off their true character. And I want to be careful here because there is a, a certain thing that's going on where uh, it has been given externally. But I think the profound truth of that is that um, if we're if we're truly buying into this God narrative and we're saying that it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, then uh, Jesus is divine. The uh, the creator of the universe is divine. And also the Holy Spirit is divine, which Jesus says lies within us. So the the divine and, and ourselves is not really as separate as we like to believe it. So in one sense, there is sort of this narrative within the Bible of God imparting a new name to somebody. But the difference here is that it is coming from the an innermost self, this Holy Spirit, which means like um, a divine way of moving through the world, uh, like a divine action, right? It is Holy Spirit. So to say that it's a, a purified action, a holy action, something that is not dirty, not uh, um, that that is not uh, tarnished with the ways of the world is to say that it is a action that lines up with the true self hiding within. So when these um, uh, new names are being given, they are true names. They aren't names that are imposed based off of an expectation of how this person should be, um, but they are names imparted based off of honoring who, who this person is. And I think we can see this very clearly in the way that people respond to these names. These names are given and they are... Um, held with a badge of honor and they are quickly adopted even as the old one uh, dies out and fades away. And while I'm on this topic of names, I just want to kind of put some other stuff in the mix here. A recent um, set of news is that Donald Trump was indicted. And for some people, that's a long time coming. Some, for other people, it's a um, sort of uh, unjust persecution. Uh, there are unfortunately some people putting this in the category of like, well, this is happening during Easter. That's no accident. He's following in the footsteps of Jesus. Uh, they are out for blood and um, all that sort of stuff. But I think that's misunderstanding Jesus um, pretty profoundly. That, that like the act of, of the cross, like what the cross is actually doing. Um, more often than not, we think of the cross as this idea of making a payment for sins. This idea of providing salvation for us as individuals. Um, and the, the thing about it is I, I don't think that's exactly what's happening. 
there's this doctrine of total depravity that comes out of Calvinism, which was coming out of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, this idea that there is no goodness in man whatsoever. Um, and when I say man, I mean humankind. That uh, God is ready to punish us for our wickedness. And Jesus sort of steps in between the Father to make the price for us, to save us from our sin. That's sort of the standard narrative. But as I read the stories, I recognize there's something a little different going on for sure. Jesus is up against empire. And left and right, he's he's not condemning any one person for their actions. Um, and he's very clear to say in the process, look, what I am doing, uh, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So traditionally, we tend to have this disconnect. There's like, there's Jesus, the loving, forgiving Jesus, and then there's God, the Father, who is uh, this kind of divine punisher. And somehow they're the same, but they're also different. Uh, I don't think that's true. I think if we're taking Je Jesus's word seriously, we have to go, well, by him showing love to the outcasts, the homeless, the prostitutions, the, the, the prostitutors, the ca tax collectors, all these um, people that the church has decided are not in, um, to the Gentiles, the, the, the literal non-believers, to the people that are not considered the ones who understand this stuff, uh, then we have to reckon with the fact that God loves those people and he loves them as they are. Because otherwise, Jesus would be saying something like, uh, change your ways and, and, and come to me. And uh, he does say stuff like that. Like he does say, like, repent for the time is near. But it's not out of the condemnation thing. Like if you look at the parables and the ways that he talks to the Pharisees, which are mostly who he's telling to repent. It's the religious leaders, not the, um, the, the so-called like dregs of society which is probably another thing we get backwards. We tell people like, repent of your wanton sin um, and come to the church because I'm the one that gets it because I'm one of the religious elite that understands. So listen to me. Um, Jesus is definitely against that. And the reason he's against that is because there's these powers and structures that he's focused on. These things that exclude and create hard boundaries that turn us into machines and have us forget our divine nature as human. So like I was talking about before with these binaries and how they turn us into robots, Jesus is concerned with uh, preventing us from being robots <laughs> is, is kind of what I'm getting at. And in that process, what he's doing on the cross is he's tackling these systemic structures, these pieces of society that form us into boxes that tell us who's in and who's out. And you can't defeat that by creating a new binary by saying um, you guys are the problem and we need to defeat you, whether that's the religious elite, whether that's Rome, whether that's the uh, the poor and the homeless and the, the sinners and tax collectors, uh, whatever categories you create, if you're creating a new category, you aren't defeating those binaries that exclude people in the first place. You're just creating a new uh, form of power based off of scarcity which is exactly what is causing these problems. And so I know this seems like a non sequitur with the names, but bear with me here. You have two disciples of Jesus. One of them that we always love to talk about as like the founder of uh, the modern church and all that kind of stuff, especially uh, Catholics are really deep on this is, is Peter, right? Who was known as Simon and Jesus gave him a new name, Peter. 
which is pretty big. Simon is a, a name that means like the one who is listened to, like um, somebody of authority, somebody who uh, is eloquent, who is a trusted voice. And then he says, no, no, that's not your name. You're, you're not an authority. You actually, uh, you're a rock. Your name is Peter, uh, Petra, uh, the rock, because um, this is how I'm going to build the foundation of my church. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But then you have this other disciple, uh, Judas. And Judas was uh, part of the Zealots. And the Zealots were a group of Jews during um, this time who were sort of waiting for revolution. They were the sort of religious extremists of the time. They're, they would carry swords and, uh, well, I think daggers would be more accurate. But the, the point is, is they would carry weapons, conceal carry, we'll say, and they were waiting for the moment to prove righteousness. Like they were waiting for the moment that evil shows its face and they could take a stand against it. And so uh, Judas, as well as many of the other followers of Jesus that weren't as close to him, had this idea of Jesus as being this sort of macho, strong, uh, undefeatable king to urge them into battle to wage war against the um, the oppressors. Um, I'm really seeing a lot of uh, through lines here with the ways that cancel culture works. There, There's this hard line that's drawn of like, no, these are the bad guys that we need to get rid of because they're the ones that are condemning us. They're the ones that are causing hurt and harm and we need to eliminate them. Like no softness here. We're, we can, we are done accepting them. We need to, to, to cut them out. And um, I see that on the other side too, right? Like this is how Christians treat trans people very much. So like, these are the people that are problem. They're the one they're harming children. They are uh, raping people in bathrooms. They are um, convincing people that uh, Christianity is bad. We need to get them out of here. We need to ra- wage a revolution in the name of God to uh, get rid of them. And so this is what Judas is doing. This is uh, where Judas's mindset is, and I'm I'm very convinced here that. Judas was not realizing he was betraying Jesus. What Judas was trying to do was incite the revolution. He was getting impatient with the ways that Jesus was taking his time. And what he wanted was a little bit of a clash. He staged a clash so that um, he could see Jesus finally conquer rather than sort of muddle around the issue and, and weave in and out. He was tired of things continuing to be broken, of things continuing to cause suffering. And he wanted that to be fixed and he wanted Jesus to be the one to fix it. And he trusted that Jesus was the Messiah and believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but he believed that the Messiah comes as a conqueror. And so this is why I think that a Judas commits suicide in the end of the story because he cannot live with this shame that he caused the death of his own savior, that he totally misread this stuff on such a level um, that he prevented the kingdom from coming because from his perspective, he sees Jesus brought to the cross and he cannot stand it. He doesn't wait for resurrection because he doesn't believe there's a resurrection. Peter, on the other hand, Peter has been told... He's at the rock. He's no longer Simon. And he says, I'm with you to the end of the age, which he believes because he's stepping into this new identity. And Jesus says, I know you're saying that, but 
um, you're going to betray me three times. And he says, no, I'm not, I, I wouldn't do that. I would never do that. And then it does happen. And so from a traditional perspective, he's gone back on his word. He is no longer following Jesus. He has literally denied his teacher. And so if you're looking at this from a Jewish perspective, from a traditional perspective, uh, it's not Peter who's the, uh, the disciple, the true disciple. It's Judas. Because what everybody was expecting at the time is like, you need somebody who is going to be zealous for God, like who is going to be on God's side and ready to fight and make the sacrifices when the time comes. And you can't have somebody who is questioning, who is doubting, um, who is scared and afraid, because that's not how this works. And it's no accident that continually through um, the Gospels, as muddied as most of the message are, messages are, there's a lot of like, and that's on purpose because you're, you're meant to sort of meditate on them and, and sit with them and, and sort of let them stew and uh, sort of have things bubble to the surface rather than just be handed to you. There's these two things that are more handed to you, which is to say that Peter is the favorite of the disciples and that Judas is the betrayer. And we're constantly reminded of that, even though to our modern ears, that sounds very obvious. Uh, it wouldn't have been obvious to the readers at the time. And there's huge implications here because what that means is by knowing the end of the story, knowing that Jesus resurrects, we do see Peter as the rock because he's the one that held out even with his doubts, even with the messiness and having questions and not having it all figured out and with his fear and his shame even. Um, he decided to say, well, the story's not done. It's still unfolding. That this is still alive. That this is still good. He's trusting that the death uh, is not the end. That those little deaths are actually um, part of the story. Judas, on the other hand, he sees the death and he he thinks it's over. It, it there's no there's nothing else can happen. Like because things did not go as I planned, and I have been given new information that I didn't see originally. Things are not okay. Uh, and furthermore, he can't see a world beyond the violence and the strife. He doesn't see the power of the cross, which isn't the power of Jesus dying. It's, it's the power of Jesus refusing to take on power because who is more worthy than the like literal God who, who created everything to say, uh, Hey, uh, like this is all mine. I'm taking it back and to have the power to do that. Right? Like, like, to say that Jesus is God is pretty profound. Like it means that he is the only one that does have the power to get rid of these powers and principalities. But what he does is instead of conquering, like we expect him to in the story, uh, the holy way of doing this, the, the fully human way of doing this, because we also got to believe he's fully human, right? So the fully God and fully human way of doing this is to uh, lead with love and forgiveness and refuse to perpetuate the cycles of violence, despite the unjust violence being done towards you. Um, Judas couldn't believe that. Peter could believe that. And that's why Peter's called the rock, because um, that sort of thing, even though it doesn't have immediate payoffs for change, is also a foundation where change can happen, where there is lasting change. Um, Peter becomes solid because of the ways that he refuses to believe that the story ends with a violent defeat. So now let's go back to the Trump indictment. 
there's this narrative that's being perpetuated that he is uh, following in the footsteps of Jesus. Uh, definitely not. Uh, the ways that he is, um, there is an echo there for sure, but it is the world's narrative, not the uh, divine self narrative. I, I would say, if I had to categorize it, Donald Trump is continuing to hide his divine light for the sake of um, conforming to the powers and principalities of the world. And it's abundantly clear in this because he posted a thing um, towards uh, one of the judges that's supposed to um, take care of the case with a picture of himself with a baseball bat and uh, the judge to the right and him kind of looking over. I don't think he's actually trying to incite violence here. I think what he's trying to do is uh, perpetuate the message, uh, look, I am stronger than you. I will defeat you in this. You think that you're strong. You think you have me, um, but you don't. And so let's get to the name meaning parts of this. Uh, Donald Trump, what a name. Uh, I don't know if uh, any of you guys have looked it up, but Donald means uh, world ruler, like like chieftain, like uh, the head honcho. And then Trump, you know, coming from uh, uh, like poker games and stuff, a Trump card, uh, which is a shortened version of triumph. So like literally is his name literally means the powers of the world win uh, that might is right. That That's literally what his name means. However, there's another piece of this story that emerged that I found uh, fantastic and amazing. There's this guy named Yusuf Salam, and he was in prison for 10 years, starting when he was about 15, because in 19, I, 1989, I think, I'll have to get the exact dates, but he was uh, part of this group called the Central Park Five. And what happened was a woman was found raped in Central Park at night. And the police rounded up these five teenagers and tried them for the crimes. They were not really given their rights. They didn't understand what they were in for. They took a plea bargain and went to jail for 10 years. A decade later, new evidence came forth, and uh, it was DNA evidence. And it proved that they were not the ones who committed the crime. And furthermore, the person who did commit the crime um, admitted to it and were locked away. And so they were freed. Uh but not after being in prison for 10 years. And the thing about this is Donald Trump um, put out a full-page ad when this trial was happening way back uh, in, I think, by the time the trial was happening, it was early 90s. And he put out a full-page ad um, basically urging New York to reinstate the death penalty because these people deserve the worst of punishments. And there's a bit of a racially motivated factor here um, these boys were from Harlem and, uh, there's these certain narratives of, uh, black men being overly sexualized, overly physicalized, that they overpower the helpless white women. So there, there's also a, um, gender end, end to the whole thing. Uh, but there's also a power, uh, dynamics end that has to do with, um, uh, the 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 rich and the poor. Donald Trump is putting out this thing because it was like a, a white middle class woman, and uh, these are a bunch of kids from Harlem, uh, from the ghetto. 
And so he puts out this full-page ad, basically condemning them, saying they're the worst people ever. Uh, we need to not have a soft stance on them because this is evil in the world. Now is not the time for forgiveness. Now is the time to eradicate this evil in the world. And it's pretty straightforward. If you get a chance to go check it out and read it, uh, it's frustrating to read, but it's pretty insightful. But the thing I really want to get to is Yusuf Salam, who is one of these Central Park Five, uh, who which then were renamed as the Exonerated Five after uh, they were proven innocent. What happened was they get proved innocent and Donald Trump does not do a 180. He doesn't apologize for the, um, the ad that he took out. He doesn't say, uh, I'm sorry, in any way. In fact, he kind of doubles down on saying uh, they got off free and this is proof that our system is broken. We were too soft on them. We made a wrong turn. So now fast forward another 10 years. We're in the today and Donald Trump is indicted. Yusuf Salam one of the uh, exonerated five, he puts out a full page ad in the New York Times. And it's in direct response to Donald Trump's some 20 odd years ago, New York Times ad. And it mentions that ad and talks and sort of reiterates it, say, this is what happened. This is why it hurt us. This is why this was an injustice. Um, but I hope and I wish upon you a fair trial because the thing is, we didn't get that. And I see the damage of that and you deserve a fair trial because everybody deserves a fair trial. And I hope that if you are convicted through that fair trial, that you would be able to see the wrongs that you did and be able to understand why that doesn't work in the world. And that's his article. It's fantastic. But the thing that I really want to highlight that is this really cool, again, probably just a chance. Like I, I don't want to put too much of a higher power with these things because sometimes these connections don't... Uh, go through how you'd expect. Although I would say they kind of always do as long as you take enough time with them and sort of transform them, let them unfold. Uh, I think there's a certain bit of storytelling here, right? Like I am choosing to tell the story that Donald Trump is working under the narrative of a world power. Um, and, and, it, and admitting that that is how you work in the world. You have to show your hard hand. You can't be soft. Um, and by soft, I mean forgiving. And Yusuf Salam, I'm choosing to do another narrative here too, because when you look at his name, uh, Yusuf means uh, God gives or uh, the divine imparts. And Salam is a, uh, a greeting, but deeper than that, it's a word that means peace. Like when you say, uh, salam. When you when you do a salam to somebody, you're you're imparting peace upon them. You're 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 saying peace be with you, basically. And so Yusuf Salam's name means um, like God gives through peace. And I, I can't help but kind of take a look at that, like like the power that these names have, and the the way that it's very important to have a name that matches with your actions and the way that you are, how discordant would this narrative be if I looked up these words and they happen to be the opposite, right? Um, I'm sure there's something that we could have worked with there. I, I don't think I would have necessarily looked at the names. I would have looked at something else, uh, found a different connection. That's the beauty of this storytelling aspect is you can kind of weave in and out and, and make it um, 
fit what you intuitively know is right, which I know is something that a lot of people are going to have some issue with because uh, you can get into some interesting territory there for sure, uh, where it's like, so you're, are you saying the whole thing's made up? And I'm not saying that. I'm saying you have to work with what's true anyway, but you can find your own connection to that truth and find your own way of revealing that truth. And I think that that's where the beauty is, where the expression is. It, I think that when we're looking at something that is involving spirit, and if we're using the Holy Spirit as this idea of moving in the world in a truthful way, in a way that matches reality, uh, reality is very expansive. Uh, I talked about this in the previous episodes about like uh, multiverse theory and um, possibility, opening a possibility, which I think is something that... Um, the LGBTQ community does fantastically is like, rather than saying you're only one or the other, uh, you're saying you could be any of this, or you could be something completely different. Like you could be, uh, you could be totally off that binary chart, not like somewhere in between male and female, but you could be like something vertical or something behind it. And, and I think there's a lot of evidence here in a lot of the metaphors used in the Bible, like like uh, the stars in the sky. Like when you look at the stars, they don't create like a nice, neat row. They're scattered about everywhere. Some are bright, some are dark, some are colored, some are uh, just white, uh, some are orbiting each other, some are uh, moving around a bunch, some are staying still, um, t some are flashing, some some are spinning. And, and there's, uh, there's so many different ways there and they create a constellation, but the constellations, you can kind of choose what you see in them, but you can't help see what you see and you can be informed by what somebody else sees, but, um, it, and, and you can't work off of what isn't there, but there's so many different ways to work off of what is there because there's so much possibility existing in the world. There's so much, um, there's no one right way to do things. And, um, so I just want to kind of draw attention to that. Like I am doing a little bit of, uh, wandering in the desert here, uh, which is another metaphor that we can really run with, uh, the Israelites in the desert. Like it takes some time to find yourself and it takes going off the path. It takes not having a direct, um, end goal necessarily, maybe some ideas of what that end goal would look like, but not quite sure how you're going to get there. Not quite sure how long it's going to take, what weird turns you're going to make, what, what strange things are going to happen along the way. Um, and, and to a certain extent, it matters completely how you get there. Uh, but it's not so much about finding the right path. It's about finding the expression that works the best for you. Um, so that's what I'm doing with all these uh, ideas, these uh, having fun with words, connecting things together. I am working off a of truth for sure. There's, there's something here and there's something that uh, feels like a stronger thread the more I pull on it, but it's not the only thread I could have pulled on. It's not the only framework I could have used. There's a bunch of them. And I want to be clear as I go forward with this, like this is all my own personal experience. This isn't um, universal truth. It's some ideas and uh, some of it will resonate with me, but won't resonate with you. And um, all of us have our own unique expression of the divine. And the, the divine is so expansive that um, none, no one of us can hold it. Uh, Jesus couldn't hold it. Uh, he said, it's better that I go. And then he imparts the Holy Spirit. Uh, the LGBTQ spectrum, like as long, like 
LGBTQIA, 2S, like, like no matter how many um, little additions to the acronym we add, it's never going to be enough to encompass full identities. Everybody has uh, an expansiveness in them that defies binaries or um, any sort of categorization. And it's not that those categorizations aren't true. It's not that the, um, like, to, to bring it to the Jesus end, it's not like Jesus's narrative isn't, uh, doesn't have truth in it. It's just that there's, there's a lot out there and there's a lot of different ways to do all this. So when I'm talking about this thing with uh, Yusuf Salam and Donald Trump, there's sort of two things going on, right? I'm making it all up in one sense, but in the other sense, there was this thread, this seed that has been there for decades. The definitions uh, of their names has been out there. It's not like that's anything new. And uh, I just happened to really like that thread and I picked it up. And there was a thousand different other things that I could have picked up instead. So in a certain sense, the seeds were there and, and I'm just sort of tending to this garden of ideas and I'm allowing these trees to grow within its own time. And uh, this is where I really like these garden metaphors. Um, these, this idea of becoming, of, of maturing, of, of fruits growing. Uh, it's a really cool way of looking at stuff that says like, um, in one sense, this was always here. In another sense, I'm creating it or I'm stepping into the process of creation. I am birthing this into existence. And within this narrative, there's a lot of uh, metaphors of birthing that are hiding under the surface. Two of the main ones that I really want to focus in on is the Passover feast, which um, commemorates the, um, the Jews going into exile uh, being freed from the uh, empire of Egypt. And what they had to do to not have their firstborn be killed, which as we look at it, like the firstborn is where the power lies, right? The firstborn is um, the structures of the world that say that like the son of, son of, son of, and that's how you deserve things. Um, this sort of structure is being destroyed, but God says, hey, if you don't want this to be destroyed within your family, uh, we're going to do a different way. I'm going to treat you guys as the firstborn, even though uh, you're, you're not necessarily compared to the earth's standards, compared to the standards of the world. Uh, so what we're going to do is we are going to smear blood over this threshold, this doorway from your home, and you're going to pass through it. Uh, so what that's going to represent is you guys being birthed into a new existence. You're going out of the home, uh, which is representative of the womb, and you're passing through this bloody gate, this sort of violent process that brings you into a wilderness, but, but also a new life, a new sense of purpose, a new understanding that no longer are you in the safety of the womb, but you are a new creation out in the world, uh, discovering yourself. And there's a lot of echoes there with the grave and the stone rolled away with Jesus coming out of death. And um, you can look at it as like a, a new birth, like this, the, um, this threshold also acting as a birth canal, uh, stepping back into the world. And in that process, leaving, but also sort of dispersing himself uh, into uh, the Holy Spirit, 
the dispersing into human beings, which was already there. There was already the seeds of that. Like if you look at the Old Testament, the ways that God, it's, it's not as if this is a new aspect of God that wasn't existing in the world before, but it's taken on a new uh, permanence. A lot like when somebody decides to come out as trans, decides to say, hey, this is my new name. Uh, that old name is the dead me. That's my dead name. And this is the new me. And in the trans community, there's actually a really good metaphor here too that um, weirdly relates to uh, the Eastern narrative. <laughs> there's a pretty popular subreddit called Egg IRL. And it's a bunch of memes, but they're, they're, the joke is like, uh, basically like, how did you know you were trans before you were trans? Um, and a lot of it's really sarcastic and um, kind of tongue in cheek, but also affirming. It's... Uh, it's this idea that like this thing was always inside of you and you didn't emerge yet. You were still in an egg. You, you hadn't yet hatched. And um, so I love tying this into the Easter narrative because uh, really when we're looking at the resurrection and this sort of new Jesus coming forth in this new body and this new Holy Spirit that was also all, always there, but maybe hidden, uh, is this idea of this this egg, this person hiding in this egg um, and emerging uh, and, and becoming known, coming out. So as I'm synthesizing these ideas and trying to figure out how to um, be myself, which involves being Mira and then also involves being Christian and more so to the point, um, being Christ. There's... Richard Rohr has this really cool book called The Cosmic Christ that really synthesizes a lot of these ideas, which is that um, if we're taking the idea of the Holy Spirit seriously and we're saying um, that we believe scriptures when they say through Paul that we are to be like little Christs, or that we're supposed to follow in his footsteps, then um, we are uh, the Spirit of God working in the world. And there's a holiness to that. And there's something that I don't want to let go of there. But if that holiness is also intermixed with this feminine identity that I have, which to be clear, isn't because it's feminine, but because it's genuine to me. And that's what makes it holy. Um, I, I'm still looking for a way to synthesize these. And I think the way to synthesize them and to find the the dance that they're wanting to create together is to take a minute to look at the nature of sin and the true nature of sin. Because sin is thrown around in the church a lot, and it's often used as a weapon. Um, there's this idea that um, your sinful nature needs to be called out, and God needs to bring you to repentance so that you change your action and can be sort of uh, brought into the fold, be be brought into the, the good side. Um and sometimes that involves your own action, a willingness on your part. And sometimes that involves God doing it for you. But either way, it's bringing um, yourself, your individual actions into account. And as I look at the gospel narrative and I look at the things Jesus focused on, I, I see a different narrative, which is he is not up against... Um, what is seen, he's up against what is unseen. And this is said in the Bible over and over again, this idea of powers and principalities, which we usually shorthand as like demons um, or 
spirits, but like, then I guess we just got to get into like, what are, what's the nature of demons and spirits, right? <laughs> um, so you could get rabbit trails that way, but it seems to be when he's talking about powers and principality, he's, he's, he's not talking about like when he says the unseen realm, he means the unseen that is among us, like the uh, systemic structures, the societal structures, the ways that the world functions. Those are the powers and principalities. It's not some weird spiritual mumble jumbo, um, at least in like the traditional sense. It's not like some uh, something that we need, like some sort of special dimensional eyes to see the way the war being waged. It's um, it's the spirits in the sense of the motion in the world. Uh, it's saying the the actions and ways that the world perpetuates are what we're up against. It's not the actions that we can see the spirit of the individual. It's the spirit of the world and when you look at it through that lens what in, what individuals being gripped by sin looks like it looks like people being stuck in systems of oppression it looks like being people um getting sin on them being uh um being obscured the light that they contain this holy light this this holy human goodness um, this unique soul that they have in the world that's an expression of the divine is being covered up. Like, um, you know, like this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, hide it under a bushel. No, right? It's being, hide, it's being hidden under a bushel. And um, the process of being cleansed from sin doesn't have to do with sort of a leaching out of a poison so much as it has to do with like taking a shower. Like this, these systemic processes have a way of um, getting on us and creating a mask. And so when I look at it through that lens and I look at the work of the cross being something that makes us clean in the sense of, uh, you gross, this stuff got on me again <laughs> and I don't know how to get it off, um, which we all experience, right? It gets recursive after a while. Like you're like, okay, well, I'm going to uh, eat organic. And then you go, because like the pesticides are killing animals. And you go like, oh, well now the farmers are being exploited. Uh, oh, wait, no, um, I, that had to ship from far away. And now the, the, it's affecting the planet, you know, and like you get these sort of things where you try to do good action. In fact, a really good show for this is the good place. They talk about the complexities of being good in the world, like, um, having a moral compass, but not knowing what to do with it and having it sort of fall short all the time. Uh, and I think that one actually has some pretty good answers to along the same lines as Jesus, which is, uh, how do you how do you oppose these forces? Um, or maybe oppose isn't even the right answer. How do you um, prevent them from having power over you? And the way that you do that is through radical love and acceptance. And I think the acceptance is the key part because a lot of times we talk about tough love. We talk about this idea that like, well, you know, would it be loving to uh, let somebody get run over instead of like pulling them out of the way. Like, even though that that's a violent action, doesn't it have a payoff? Uh, I don't think it's an apt metaphor because it, it's not, we're not in life or death situations. <laughs> uh, the only reason we think it's that way is because we have this view of an angry God that is going to punish us if we don't create right action. So it's still stemming from this thought that there is a poison within us that needs to be leached out rather than um, a dirt that just needs to be cleaned up with love and care. And and so when we look at Jesus on the cross, he is doing this trick of um, showing tremendous love and care to the people who are oppressing him. 
saying, no, I'm, I'm not going to perpetuate this cycle. I'm not going to allow the sin to just be passed back and forth. Instead, I'm going to uh, wash it clean, which I showed as an example of by washing my disciples' feet, which I've showed as an example over and over again of these uh, healing people from their infirmities, uh, making their bodies feel whole because they are whole. It's a, it's a physical representation of a spiritual reality. Um, so when I look at sin from that perspective, this idea of something that uh, is a systemic problem that causes me to forget my wholeness and causes me to, when I look in the mirror, see myself as not enough, even though that's not true, uh, it means that the sin that I contain is actually the mask that I wear. And if the mask that I wear is this male heteronormative mask, uh, then my process of being made pure and being made holy through the work of the cross is to let go of that mask and allow myself to be myself. And in that process, I have to trust the resurrection because if I just go, oh, it's removal of the mask, then that's, uh, that's dangerous, that's terrifying because it's a thing that has protected me in the world. It's let me um, fit into the binary so that I am not attacked or oppressed. It's something that has given me comfort in a way, it's something that has allowed me to be safe in a way, but it's also something that has obscured my true self. Um, so in a lot of the same ways where Jesus could have become the conquering hero and been safe, safe from the persecution, safe from literally dying, um, I could do the same thing by continuing and choosing to hold this mask and succumbing to the powers of the world. Or um, I can trust in the resurrection I can trust in Easter Sunday that that's not the whole story, that even though that feels like a death, even though that's unmooring and uncertain and puts me out into the wilderness off from the protection of my home, it is something that means that I'm stepping into being the true, fully human me that was always hiding under the surface. So you might have noticed I spent a lot more time talking about Christianity here. And that was on purpose because where I do see a little bit of trouble with the LGBTQ community and um, stuff like cancel culture, stuff that's in an attempt to affirm where people are also excludes another, uh, that is something to, to be addressed for sure. Uh, but it's not near so as problematic as the way that Christians treat others. And there's a lot more work for Christians to be done within the current context. I think something that really highlights this is um, recently there was uh, another shooting and um, it was in Tennessee. And the difference with this one was uh, the shooter was trans and it was um, kids, which unfortunately isn't nothing new, but it was Christian kids, which kind of is something new. And what that created was this binary narrative of, um, again, as I was talking about in the death and acceptance series, this quick want for witch hunts and to create an other that is dangering the children, which has to do um, a lot with this idea of be fruitful and multiply, this idea of empire, this idea of legacy and lasting impact and um, purity and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, also the, the ways that transness uh, upends a lot of those binary narratives and says that things are a lot more nuanced than you expected. Um, and there's a lot more unknown than you expected. There's a lot more mystery than you expected. And people are a lot more free 
to be themselves than you expected. Um, so they sort of latched on to this. Um, not everybody, of course, but there was a, a lot of more of the extreme um, of politicians that we have today um, sort of calling for a uh, taking arms against these uh, trans aggressors. Um, there's sort of a, a specter of this idea that these people are um, coming to kill your kids and that they are convincing everybody that they are okay um, when they're not okay. And we need to protect ourselves against them. And this is all the more reason to make sure that you carry guns. This is all the more reason to make sure that we don't let them into our bathrooms um, so that we can save our women. Uh, it doesn't matter that the statistics show that 95, I think it's 95%, it's somewhere hovering close to that. It's like either 93 or 95% of mass shootings that have happened over the last couple decades have been uh, white males. Uh, and there's only been like two or three shootings uh, that have happened from a trans person versus thousands that have happened uh, with white men. The narrative is strong and the witch hunt is strong. And I wish I wasn't... Um, hmm. I wish I wasn't so accurate. I feel like there was a bit of prophecy that happened while I was talking about all of this stuff last season when we were in the abortion debate and saying like, hey, this isn't where this is going to end. There's going to be a progression here. There's going to be some other uh, liberties that are removed by other groups um, from other groups of people. Um, I really wish I had been wrong on that, but it looks like I wasn't. And this is all part of a really big trans backlash perpetuated um, almost exclusively by the Christian right. And again, I'm careful to say not all Christians and not all people on the right and not all people who are Christian who are on the right, but um, by a, a pretty powerful minority who is absolutely convinced that this is how you uh, wage the war for righteousness. And so... As I'm left with all this stuff, this tremendous hurt and this tremendous pain, I have to look at these examples of people through history who have done nonviolent resistance. Obviously, there's Jesus, and that's like this huge example that I've been talking about over and over again. But um, there's also, there's Gandhi, there's Buddha, there's Martin Luther King Jr., uh, there's uh, uh, Yusuf Salam. Um, there's a reason that these... Uh, narratives that we have throughout history of nonviolent resistance have a lasting impact. For the same reason that Jesus um, called Peter the rock, because there's stuff that looks like foolishness at the time. There's stuff that meet a lot of resistance on both sides. These actions by these characters were confusing, even by their followers. And they were hard positions to maintain and positions that ultimately ended in a lot of suffering for the people going down this path. But as there's been time set in the grave metaphorically with these movements, these are the ones that have a lasting impact that we intuitively grasp had something else going on with them that weren't just another revolution, but was something different that brought something to the world that isn't going away. And so that's the thing that I have to realize is 
though I find myself a Christian, I find myself more on the side of the LGBTQ community because of that radical acceptance. And even though there are some calls for violence there, there are much less. And there's a lot more room to explore the wilderness and find the little gems of truth hiding throughout and find ways of allowing for yourself and others a, a radical emergence of a holy self that was always hiding within. But it does really make me recognize what we're up against, which is to say those power plays that if we were going to be successful in this um, freeing of ourselves and others from the bondage of these structures and systems, the only way to do that is to not partake in the systems ourselves. Audre Lorde says, uh, you cannot destroy the master's house with, or you cannot use the master's tools to destroy the master's house. And so I feel grateful for this sort of found personality where I can't untangle the two because I'm stuck in this tension where I, I have to figure out a way to live with the Christians around me. And taking the time this Easter to sort of reemerge the story, recontextualize it, find new nuggets, new connections with new understandings, I think has really given me um, a better sense of what that looks like, what this resistance to these powers looks like, which is to say radical love. And there's nothing new there, I th except maybe I think the new thing is to say that radical love does look like radical acceptance. That it says, um, I'm, I will not try to change you. I will not try to convince you. I will just love you. And everything in us, because of the messages that we receive from the powers of this world, say that that is not going to be enough. That if you do that, you're, you're letting somebody walk over you. You're letting somebody... Uh, win the argument, you're letting somebody say that they um, are the ones that are right. And in a certain sense, that's true, but that's also not the, the whole story. Uh, what love does, what the power of the cross shows, is that resurrection comes next. That these powers and principalities are proven to not be enough when you don't partake in them. When you choose to step away from them and do a new way of living that is... Um, not weak by any sense, that's very risky, but is also the cost that it takes for um, new emergence in the world. Uh, it's just radical love. That's all it is. Uh, so we circle back to all this stuff from the beginning. It's like, where do we find truth? Where do we find creativity and life? Uh, it's through living a life of love and choosing into that. And that's all it is. That's all it's ever been. And radical love looks like stepping into the truth that someone finds and trusting it as good and beautiful and reveling in it and exploring it. And so as part of that exploration with myself, I've realized that these name meanings are really important. And this name meaning that I've attributed to myself, Mira, that means a reflection. And Akbar means big or grand. So this name that I subconsciously chose for myself that felt right, that felt real, uh, turns out to mean something much bigger, which is what I've always been about, 
which is a grand reflection. So thank you for joining me, a grand reflection, in this process of enacting a grand reflection through the spirit of this podcast called A Grand Reflection. May we all emerge and peace be with you.